0: If you weren't in here uh, a couple minutes ago when I had a chance, happy Mother's Day. Glad to see all of you this morning. We're going to be continuing our series through 2 Timothy this morning. Uh, and, and, you know, when we talk, think about mothers on a day like this, moms, your importance in the spiritual formation of your children cannot be overstated. As we're thinking about 2 Timothy, right out of the gate, Paul in chapter 1 verse 5 writes this, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so Timothy learned the faith from his mom and from his grandma. They lived it out before him. They very much followed Deuteronomy 6 that Jeff read earlier, the, the, the Jewish Shema. that Hero Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And You shall teach this to your children diligently, intentionally, and as you just go along. As you sit, as you rise, as you lay down, both intentionally and naturally, and this, it's this idea of discipleship uh, that, that we see you, Eunice and Lois, they've lived out, that is going to be what we focus on today. But not just as it relates to family, but as it relates to everyone. See, when we come to 2 Timothy, if you step back from it and just try to understand what, what's going on there, it's his last letter that he's ever going to write He's on death row. He, he won't make it through the end of the year. He'll be killed under Nero. And so he's writing to Timothy, his protege, uh, in the ministry. And, and it's both kind of a, 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 job, a job description for Timothy and, and pastors in one sense. But in another sense, it's very much just, and this is how we're going to apply it today, a job description for Christians. And like any job description we talked about last week, You're going to have, and it's going to say, responsibilities include this and this and this and this and this. And so, week in, week out, for the next, we're on week three. This is a 12 week series. We're going to be examining different responsibilities of the job description of a good disciple. And the job description, the responsibilities that we're going to be looking at today is the responsibility as it relates to discipleship. And somebody says, well, what is that? Well, first, let's think about a disciple. What is a disciple? In one word, a disciple is a follower. So you could be a disciple of Gandhi. You could be a disciple of Oprah. You could be a disciple of a political ideology. You're a follower of this person or this idea. But to be a Christian is to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. All right? We follow in what he said and how he lived. We seek to do that and believing first what he's done for us. You can't be a disciple without first giving your life, your heart to Christ and taking what he has done for us on the cross where, where he took our sin and gave us his righteousness so we can stand clean before the Father without submitting our lives to that and believing that, taking that as our own, receiving Him as Savior, yes, but also as Lord. And so a disciple is a follower of Jesus. But this following... Has to be learned. It's not just like, okay, you, you know, you get saved, you, you, you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you repent and believe, and then it's just osmosis is downloaded into your head and you know everything. It's a process of being discipled and becoming an ever deeper follower of Jesus. It's learned, it doesn't come naturally. And so it has to be taught, it has to be modeled, just like Eunice and Lois did. That's what discipleship is all about. And so it's it's not that unlike mentoring in some ways. And Paul is saying this is part of the job description of a follower of Jesus, that we are always to be being discipled and we are always to be discipling others. To put it more succinctly, and you can go ahead and write these down in your notes. This will be number one and number two. The Christian life is both the discipled life, E.D., discipled life, and the discipling life. So number one, the Christian life is the discipled life. Number two, the Christian life is the discipling life. And so let's jump into what Sarah just read for us and begin unpacking this a little bit more. And so verse one, look at verse one again with me. You then, my child, right? Paul's writing to Timothy and he saw him as his son in the faith, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I was not good at English in uh, high school. I mean, I made it through and I was more of a math and science person, which is funny why God brought me into ministry where now I deal with language, but as I look this up, I understand that this is a passive imperative form of the verb in dynamo, which the root word's dynamite, power, is where it comes from. And it's an imperative, and an imperative in a present sense carries on the idea of continuing action. And so if we were gonna literally translate this, it'd be keep on being strengthened. Okay, it's an ongoing thing, it never ends, you continue. And it's also a divine passive, which means that God is the one doing the empowering. Okay, it happens, verse 1, by the grace, the strengthening, keep on being strengthened, keep going, by, so who does it? It happens by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so he's the power, he's the growth, it flows from him, all right? But like I said, number one in your note, this Christian life, it is the discipled life. And so we are to always be continuously growing, learning, being poured into. And God's created and chosen vehicle for the primary means of that is the local church. It's the primary means for discipleship. And your, your discipleship begins very, I mean very easily with, with what we're doing right now. Gathering. Gathering to hear the word preached, to, 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 to you know, sing it, to pray it, to read it, and to see it. We'll see part of it today through the Lord's Supper. Other times we see it as we perform baptism. And so a huge aspect of being discipled is what we're doing right now. That's why Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 writes, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so you notice right there, it says stir one another up to love and good works. And how does the author of Hebrews say that that happens? By not neglecting to gather together. And so this is one of the primary ways we encourage one another. He means for us to repeatedly and regularly gather to hear the word preached. And receive that as bread. All right, It's a way of being discipled. But that's not the only way of being discipled. When you think about discipleship, sometimes I like to think about golf clubs. I I think I can go out to... I like to play golf, but golf plays me more than I play it. I'm not very good at it. But I think I could go out to uh, you know, a course and, and take three clubs and be perfectly fine. I could take a three-wood, I could take a seven-iron, and I could take a putter. and That's all I really need. But when you do think about clubs, you group them kind of in those ways. You have, you have your woods, you have your irons, you have your putter. And everybody wants to be able to hit the driver. I mean, if you can slam that thing and hit it long and straight, you can save a lot of strokes, right? And the driver, that's what people want to think about. That's what they really want to do that. As we apply that to discipleship, the driver is kind of what we're doing right now. You can cover a lot of distance. You can talk to a lot of people. And so this is kind of like the woods. Then you have irons. How many of you even play golf? Or Is this a horrible illustration? <laughs> <clears throat> Just go with me. Watch golf. It's on every Sunday, so you can watch it and learn a little bit. Your irons, they require a little bit more finesse, right? And so that we could kind of relate that in a way to uh, Sunday morning Bible study, or community groups. It's a, it's a place where there's a small group and some dialogue, some give and take. But then your putter is for bad golfers like myself, where I probably make a whole lot of the errors. I want to hit that driver. I want to, that's how I want to play. I want to, you you know, be able to pitch pretty well. But so I never hardly practice putting. But it's hugely important and it's personal. Right. And so as we relate that to discipleship, that's more of that one on one or, or one on three. Very disciple, you know, very much discipleship. And that's the sense in which I want to For the rest of the sermon, use the word discipleship. This very small group, this one-on-one, this one-on-three mentoring type aspect. But before we dive into that a little bit more, I want to state the obvious on something. Friends, in any of these discipleship scenarios, whether it's the big group, a small group, or a one-on-one, the first step of discipleship is showing up. You can't be discipled in any of those scenarios if you're not there. If you're not present, you can't be stirred up by others for faith and good works. And so understand, Christianity is not for loners. It's not for individualists. It's for people traveling together down the narrow path that leads to life. And there's an inherent togetherness in it. That's why Paul writes about how we need one another. We're members of one another. We're a body. Different strengths, different roles to play. And we need each other. We need input. We need advice. We need correcting. We need teaching. We need modeling. We need to grow. And so, friends, the Christian life is the discipled life. If you are a Christian, you are to be being discipled, be being strengthened. That's the first aspect that we're going to talk about today. The second aspect is that the Christian life is the discipling life. It's the discipling life. So look at verse 2. We'll start in verse 1 and just read into verse 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. All right? It's the discipled life. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so Paul's command to be strengthened didn't stop with Timothy when he said, hey, Timothy, be strengthened. No, he said, I want it to go out from you to other people as well. And so Paul poured into Timothy and Timothy poured into others. But Paul didn't just pour into Timothy, he also poured into Tychicus, Trophimus, Tertius, Erastus, John Mark, Luke. You can go through the latter chapters of, of Acts, all the letters he wrote, all the people. He, these are people he's discipled, he's pastored, he's poured into. Some places for a couple of months, some places like Ephesus for a couple of years. Paul not only worshipped and enjoyed God, he led others to do the same. And he calls us, the church, both corporately and individually to this, using our woods, using our irons, and using our putters. And so the church gather, gathers and scatters. Have you all y'all heard that? We, we gather, and so right now we're gathered, right? And here in a few minutes, like good Waffle House hash browns should be, we will scatter, Right? We will go out from here and we will be scattered all over the place. Some of us, you know, in South Nashville, some of us in College Grove, some of us over in Brentwood, some of us over in Smyrna, we'll be scattered all around. And when we scatter, the, the teaching, the oversight of the church should continue in the lives of members. And it happens through life. It happens over weeknight desserts. Gathering on you know for for cookouts with one another. It gathers while it happens while folding laundry, taking trips to the grocery store and inviting others to come along with you. Happens at the gym. It happens as businessmen or women gather for lunch with people in their area. Discipling lasts all week as members talk and pray and encourage and assist one another in the fight. For love and holiness. Because it is a fight. It, it doesn't come naturally. Right? That's why we always talk about. You don't have to teach a, a, a toddler. To, to, to be selfish. It comes naturally. They're just going to do it. Another analogy I could give you. How, how many of you have ever seen pigs. Come to the trough. Right? A couple of us. I was talking with a guy at the retirement yesterday. Uh, the Fulberg colonel. Who gave the, the, the speech at, at my brother's retirement and he comes from a pig farm in Illinois and they had 1500 pigs he said they always told me that you know you smell that smell smells like money he said I don't believe it <laughs> but when, when pigs come to a trough my cousin's got several pigs he's got 400,000 so he mass produces chickens he's got like 400,000 at a time but he's got a diversified portfolio because on the other end he's got this like organic farm And he's got these organic pigs, right? That that he raises and breeds and then they slaughter some and they have organic bacon and pork and just good stuff, right? Mm, Somebody said, yeah, that's right. I said bacon, I did. But when pigs come to the trough, man, they are, it's rough, right? They are squealing, they're fighting, they're shoving, they're pushing, they're stepping on one another. They have no consideration for anyone else around them. Now, I'm not calling us pigs yet, but I think we do share some similarities with them, more so than we might think, and in ways that maybe we've never even thought about. So even today, let's just take today for example. When when you got to this place, where did you park? Especially those of you who are younger and can walk well. Where did you park? And what time did you get to church, especially those of you who are teachers? And where did you sit? Now, obviously, I can see where you're sitting, but in the sense of, like, why did you decide to sit where you're sitting? Who did you speak to? See, each of these very small decisions give us an opportunity to either serve others, like Jesus. He came to not be served, but to serve or it gives us an opportunity just to think about ourselves alone. Now, I'm not saying we don't ever think about ourselves. But do any of those thoughts enter in? Hey, who can I bless today by saying hello? Asking how their week went. Who can I bless today, if those of you who are younger have good legs, by parking further away so that someone can, with a lot of kids or something can park a little closer? This is... Who we want to be. This is how disciples live. Discipling others is an others-oriented life. And being a disciple is an others-oriented life. We seek to live that way just as Jesus did. And so it means laboring for the sake of others. This is the, the heart behind discipling. We love God and therefore we love others. And it's an others-oriented And specifically now as we kind of roll into talking about one-on-one or kind of one-on-three discipling, where you're pouring personally into others, this is hugely important to keep in mind. It's not about me. We are working to labor to proclaim the, the Christ in the power of God and present others mature in Christ. As Colossians calls us to. And so this one on one or one on three discipleship relationship, it's a pattern. Right? A pattern that's well established across Scripture. You go back to Deuteronomy 6 that we just ran, read a few minutes ago, and I'm, I'm going to read again in, in a few minutes, where parents are called to disciple their children. But then beyond family, this small one-on-three, the Bible is full of these things. Moses disciples Joshua to get him ready. Eli disciples Samuel. You know, Eli's got some issues. He still gets Samuel ready. Elijah disciples Elisha. We can go all through the Old Testament with this, but obviously the greatest disciple of all is Jesus. And Jesus... Like Christianity did not begin with some big mass production, you know, product rollout. There wasn't 24-7 media coverage about Jesus. He did attract crowds, so he would pull out, you know, the proper clubs from his golf bag when that happened. But what did he spend the bulk of his time doing? Walking around, pouring into 12 guys. That's how Christianity primarily began. He poured into these men over a three-year period, and they changed the world. Someone's like, well, yeah, but I'm not Jesus. No, we're not. I get that. But Paul, again, he discipled a ton of people. Peter, John. Church history tells us John discipled Polycarp, who connected with Ignatius. Ignatius helped the world be free from some heresies. And in my own life, I mean, I've been to seminary, right? Huge, it was great, loved it, hugely, you know, uh, formative in my own life. But maybe more formative than that were the two years I spent when I was at Georgia Tech being discipled by a guy named Marcus Hinton through Athletes in Action. Every week, meeting with me, every week, asking me hard questions about my life, every week, going through either a book of the Bible that we're studying together or some other book, teaching me and modeling for me what it means to follow Jesus. And even now, monthly I get together with a a group of guys who, who are poured into by a more seasoned pastor. Disciples us. And then I seek to turn and do that To others, not just in this venue, but also in some one-on-one scenarios. This is part of the job description of a disciple. I mean, you think about Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so we always apply the Great Commission in the sense of evangelism to all people, all Christians, and rightly so, it absolutely is. But that teaching others also is in there and applicable for all other people, for for all of us. It's just as much a part of the Great Commission as evangelism is. And those of you with children at home, your children are the front yard of your discipleship. But it also is to go out to others. Somebody says, how? How how do we do this? Well, one thing is we have to be intentional. And so this is two way in your notes. The, The discipling life is intentional. All right. The discipling life is intentional. You have to make an effort. You have to make an effort to both be discipled and to disciple others. Look at verse one again. You then, my child. So you have this call. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you've got this you then. You have this call to Timothy to be strengthened. And it's an intentional thing for him to be strengthened, right? But at the same time, I mean, you think about that, like, let me put it this way. We've been getting a lot of rain. Is it raining right now? It's not raining right now. Rain, it's going to rain later. When it starts raining, if we stay in the house, are we going to be dry? Yeah, this is not rocket science, yes. <laughs> if we go outside, are we going to get wet? Right. Right. Do we cause the rain to happen? No. So what we can do is put ourselves in a place where when it does rain, we get wet. That's part of what discipleship is. We're putting ourselves under the faucet so when God turns it on, like, we don't do it. God's the one. It's a divine passive. He's the one who does the strengthening. But our job is to put ourselves in a place where when He turns the faucet on, when He causes it to rain, we get wet. And so it's intentional in putting ourselves in that place where we can be poured into, but it's also intentional in finding faithful men. He says, go find them, all right? And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so you have to be intentional both in getting disciples and in finding faithful men and women who you can disciple and who will disciple others. And then you have to be intentional about pouring into them. And friends, that can be as easy as reading a book of the Bible, reading other books. But you come prepared, you come ready, and you show up. You show up. It can just be getting together and talking about what's going on in your life and how your spiritual life is going, how you're struggling, and just staying with that, not quitting, not being late, being intentional. All right, the discipling life is intentional. But friends, the discipling life is also, and this is two B. it's also natural. So the discipling life is intentional. There's some intentionality you have to have with it. But it also is to be natural. It's something that's kind of just as you go along type of discipling. And that's what we're going to see Paul do here with some examples he's going to give us. But it's also going back to Deuteronomy 6 again. That's what we see. Let me read it again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now listen. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. So there's an intentionality there, right? And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. All right, just seizing teachable moments in just the ordinary mundane moments of life and so there's both an intentionality but then also just kind of as you follow Jesus and invite people into that a lot of following Jesus is something that's just as much caught as it is taught and it's caught as people walk with you through life and see how you go through life and just as an encouragement some, the greatest discipling does not happen by you standing in front of people and being so strong and just, you know, mesmerizing people with, with how strong you are. And the greatest discipling happens through weakness. God's power is made perfect in our weakness, right? And He works through our weakness. It's by letting people pull the curtain back and, and see, you know, the, 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 like the, the curtain in the Wizard of Oz, right? They got this big front, he's this great glorious wizard, and then they're like, who's back there? Letting people peek behind the curtain and see the real you, weaknesses and warts and all, and how you cling to Christ in the midst of that. Now you don't have it all together, but you lean into Christ in your non togetherness. It teaches, it coaches, it disciples. It's not about having it all together but pointing to the one who does. And to that end, Paul now gives three pictures and specific examples of how you can kind of disciple others naturally. And so look at them. Verse, we'll go ahead and read them all so we have all, all in mind. Verse 3, Share in suffering as a good soldier. So there's one, a soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Verse 5, an athlete, there's the second one, is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And then the third one is the hardworking farmer. who ought to have the first share of the crops. And then kind of as a th- cap, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And so friends, you can, you know, as we seek to disciple naturally, here's one, another thing you can write down underneath 2B, you can almost put another, number one. You disciple naturally. As you endure suffering and remain focused, just as you naturally go along and you endure suffering and as you remain focused and invite people into your life and they walk with you, they see this in you, you are discipling them. And so Paul, from all of his arrests, all of his jail times, all the times he's been in prison, he's had ample time to see Roman soldiers. That's why he writes about them quite a bit. And he thinks about the parallels between the soldier and the Christian life. And here he points to their willingness to both suffer and to remain focused. Because again, some of our best discipling happens in the midst of our brokenness. The soldiers knew, like, you know, they're not going into battle from the comfort of their bedroom, they're going to be in a nasty, stinky tent with a bunch of other nasty, stinky dudes. And being frank, there's probably all kinds of diseases and stomach issues going around in those camps. That's the way it rolled in older days. It was, a, it was not a good, good thing. So he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he also says, no soldier gets entangled. So here's the remaining focused part. Gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And so remain, you know, disciple people as you endure suffering. We've been praying for Matt and Chrissy Ballard in here, you know, for a couple of weeks. Matt's the pastor of South Point Community Church, dear friend of mine. We meet about once a month and talk. Chrissy's his wife. Chrissy has an aggressive form of breast cancer. And so we've prayed for her from the pulpit multiple times. We pray for her as a staff all the time and pray for Matt. They're enduring suffering, and as that happens, they're inviting people into it, and they're discipling people from that. They're not wasting, John Piper wrote a book, don't waste your cancer. You invite people into these things and let them walk with you through it. Both they, serve, they get to serve you, which is a blessing to them and to you, but also they get to see what it looks like to suffer and what it looks like to go through a hard time and lean into Christ. Not be, bare, you know, gir- grabbing your bootstraps and trying to, you know, make yourself strong, but lean into Christ in the midst of your weakness. Some of your best discipling from it. So don't waste your suffering. Endure it and use it to push others towards Christ and deeper into Christ. But then the second idea of remaining focused, not being entangled and says in civilian pursuits. Now, he's not talking about like like I should neglect my family, right? We should never go on a vacation or something. Everybody needs a Sabbath. It's an important it's an important thing. I'm getting an amen somewhere, right? And so this isn't talking about, you know, neglecting your family or something like that. What's being forbidden here is all the things that uh, is not all the things that don't have an open Bible in front of them. You can't do anything and you don't have an open. He's not talking about that. He's talking about just becoming entangled in things that might be perfectly innocent in and of themselves, but they hinder you from living for Christ and growing in Christ and being discipled and discipling others. So what Paul's getting at is a mindset and mission. Not getting distracted by things that simply don't really matter. A couple years ago, Kenny Nolan, is Kenny in here? Okay. Kenny had a saying, Kenny Nolan had a saying that he frequently owned his mouth where he would say, you know, what does this really matter in light of eternity? That's a good question for us to ask. The things that we worry about and the things that we get so hung up on and and uptight about in, in light of eternity, what does it really matter? Like, will these things that we spend so much emotional energy on matter to us on our deathbed? I'm not saying, well, you don't do anything that's not... I mean, I'm not talking extremes here, but surely there are things that we get entangled with and they hinder us from living for Christ and they distract us from keeping the main thing the main thing. So friends, let's not be entangled. Let's not go distracted from the mission because a distracted soldier is a dead soldier. Keep going. Look we'll at verse five in the second example of how you disciple others naturally. He's going to give us an illustration of an athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So obviously this one stands out to me, right? He's talking about the Olympics, like the original Olympics. And in those days, you were not allowed to compete. Like if you showed up and you were out of shape, they, you could not compete. They required 10 months at minimum of training. And if you had not been training to that level, as soon as you showed up, they would disqualify you, all right? So already we can start applying this metaphor, lack of training, like we are to train ourselves for godliness, like an athlete. Paul talks about that in his first letter to Timothy. And so failure to train would result in disqualification, but also failure to abide by the rules of the competition would earn an athlete a penalty. That penalty could be anything from being disqualified or a fine all the way to scourging depending upon the severity of what you did. But the whole point of this, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The whole point of this is that as we disciple others naturally, one of the ways we do that is as we model obedience. You disciple as you model obedience to those who are around you, particularly those you've invited into your life. And this idea of model o- obedience isn't about strutting your, your stuff like you're on a runway. Look at me. I'm, a, you, But it's just that daily, faithful, mundane, day in, day out, ordinary life. And modeling that before those who are watching you. When it's easy and when it's hard. And we're not talking perfection. But when you fail, because you will, repenting. And even that... Models, even that, disciples. So, those of you who are parents, you're going to fail in parenting. I do it all the time. But one of the best things you can do in discipling your kids is go to them and apologize and repent to them and tell them, Mommy and Daddy need Jesus too. I'm a sinner and I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And repenting before God for it, God, please forgive me. That's modeling, that's teaching. God redeems even our failures, if we'll let him. And so Paul is saying an athlete cannot be crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And so we have rules to play by, right? Not to earn our salvation. Jesus did that for us. He kept the rules perfectly because we won't. But now that we have been saved, these are rules for how life works best. And he says, hey, live these out for your own good. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep them. And it's not about legalism. It's about staying on course in the marathon of life. We can't take shortcuts and redefine God's word or just straight up reject it. If we want the reward of faithfulness, we must compete according to God's standards. And as we, mo- as we do this, we model, we disciple those around us. And so natural discipleship can happen just as you endure Suffering and as you remain focused on the main thing and as you model obedience. And then thirdly, you disciple as you work hard for gospel growth. As you work hard for gospel growth or gospel harvest. Look at verse 6. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Farmer. Think about farming for a minute. For one, there's nothing like these first two examples, military and athlete. Those are, those are glamorous. Those, people get accolades. They get praise for that, right? No farmer's calling a press conference when he bails hay. There, there, there are accolades happening for that. He's not getting patted on the back for it. Nobody's applauding him. And similarly, our, our walk as disciples who are making disciples, it's not glamorous, It involves sowing, it involves planting, it involves plowing, it involves monitoring. And like farming, it's endless. The farmer doesn't clock in, he doesn't clock out. He gets up early, he works the fields, he cares for his animals, and he shoots wolves. With no accolades, no pats on the back. And so discipleship is like farming in that it's not really glamorous. But it's also like farming in that it's hard work. Any of you guys in here ever baled hay? Praise God for you. I like all of you who just raised your hand more than I did 30 seconds ago. (laughs) My respect just went way up for you. Bailing hay is, that is a job. That is work. That is hard work. And that's discipleship. It takes hard work. And like a farmer, there's risk involved. A farmer always risks something going bad and ruining his crop. And just say you have to humble yourself to be discipled by someone, you have to humble yourself in order to disciple another because discipling involves doing difficult things like saying no, persevering through troubles, knowing when to bear with someone and doing it. And your invitations might be spurned, your counsel might be rejected. And friends, we don't lean into our own strengths in this, we lean into the power of God and our weakness, and we're just beggars pointing other beggars to bread. It's hard work, and it's also farming's not for the impatient. We don't always see immediate fruit as we disciple others. To disciple means to be like a farmer who plants his crops trusting that they will eventually spring up. And so we trust God to use His Word even if we never see the fruit. Like whether in discipleship or in evangelism, the seed may lie under the ground until we do as well and then spring up. But it's to this that we labor. And so the Christian life is both the discipled life You are to be discipled here and in groups and in smaller groups. And it is the discipling life we're to pour that out to others, both intentionally and naturally as life comes along. And so just a few takeaways, very practical. Today's one of the most practical sermons I've probably ever preached. That's probably bad in some ways, but maybe not. Get discipled. Men and women's group, we formally help facilitate this from September to May. So it's kind of drawing to an end right now. And so we have sign-ups, we have sheets, and we're like, hey, you know, Jeff Williams got a group that he's leading at lunch downtown Nashville on Tuesdays. And, and John White Knight's got a group on Thursday nights that's meeting here in Nowensville. And so we do that and we put a big list out. And so that's one way you can sign up. But even if you don't want to wait to the fall for that, even now, let an elder know. We'll get you hooked up with people. Or maybe you just see someone. Maybe, maybe a younger mom sees an older mom. It's like, that's who I want to be. Well, go ask if you can hang out with her. Not rocket science. It takes some intentionality, right? I want to be that type of person. I want to get around them. I want to learn from them. I want to be poured into by them. Or maybe you look around and the word just puts someone on your heart. You want to see them presented before Christ. You know, it's holy. And so you look around and you see this person. You're like, ah, I want to pour into that person. I would love to ask them. They may say no. They may say yes. Taking someone under your wing. And even if it's not something super formal, just start having lunch and conversations with different people. And just asking, what's the Lord doing in your life? How's he teaching you? What is he teaching you? What are you studying? Those are conversations that should be common amongst us as we seek to foster a a, a culture of discipleship. Because again, the Christian life is the discipled life. And it is the discipling life. Let's pray in the men who are going to help lead in communion. Would you come forward? Father, we thank you for everything. Every good gift comes from you. There's nothing that we have that is apart from you our breath, the beating of our heart, and the salvation that you give to all who would believe. Not based upon what we do, but based upon what Christ did in his life and death and resurrection, and our receiving that as our own. His life becomes our life. And his death is a substitute for what we've been condemned for. He atones. Jesus atones for it. And it becomes our own. And he walked out of the grave in victory, defeating death. And we just wait for him to come back and enact its defeat to cause it to go extinct. And Father, when we contemplate the cross and what your Son did for us and what you endured in sending Him to bear your proper and right wrath against our sin, where we know that at the cross your wrath and mercy were mingled. And we see both. And so, Father, as we come now to this time of remembering what Christ did for us in a very special way, we ask that you would remind us of the sacrifice, but you would also remind us of the reality that this represents. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again, but we are also having some eschatological hors d'oeuvres of the final supper of the Lamb that we will have someday. So fill us both with a renewed humility of our need for you. And let us come as beggars in need of daily bread. and fill us with hope that you have overcome the grave, Jesus. And there is laid up for us glory in your presence for eternity. Help us to cast our eyes on you and keep them there.